Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Today's episode is brought to us by BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Help? I need somebody help. Always somebody. Uh, is, is there, <laughs> I just had, I had way too much fun with that. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? For me, I know it's always been comparing myself to others or uh, being afraid to ask for my needs to get my needs met because I feel like then you would abandon me or it was just like feeling like I'm not enough. The service BetterHelp is available for clients worldwide. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. Hear it from a a review written by BetterHelp user CH after counseling with Dr. Carmen Velazquez for two weeks on issues concerning depression intimacy-related issues, self-esteem, and ADHD. Quote, Dr. Velasquez is great. She checks in frequently over chat, had good availability on the app, and has a lot of tactical methods to try, which I appreciate. End quote. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's even more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available for those that need financial support. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. That's right. BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. Always wanted that little slash before my name. Now I have a slash. Uh, That's H-E-L-P. And you can join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I also have a special offer for all BYKY listeners. You get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. I just love saying the forward slash Leo. Again, it's BetterHelp forward slash L-E-O. Dr. Stephanie Amos. All right. Uh, doctor, well, now where's Amos from, first of all? Like what, what's, the, what's the origin story of Amos? Oh, well, there's a really long origin story to Amos. Um, my background is Jewish. And um, during the Second World War, my grandfather says that um, uh, there were, um, sorry, this was the First World War. There were um, women who were losing their husbands, uh, at war and, um, they didn't have any way to, uh, pay for their kids. And so they would sell the name of their last name to, so that people could avoid the draft. Um, and so my great grandfather apparently bought the name off of someone and the name was Amizen. And then at some point in time, it was, it was cut down to Amos. That's the origin. So it's from Eastern Europe. Wow. You know, 
<laughs> if if this is the stuff I learned in history class, I would have sat up front. <laughs> you, you know, we're learning all, yeah. all the all the wrong things. This is it's a way more fascinating story because I have like a million other questions, but this podcast ain't about that. But but that's a fascinating. I did, I had no idea people were doing that. That it's so crazy. Um, now where are you yeah. at right now, Doctor Amos? Uh, like to, I'm are at you, the I, center for yeah. Go ahead. I'm in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'll give you a pause. Uh, I'm in Toronto. I'm at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And and in my what's office. and what's your role there? So I'm a child and youth psychiatrist here. I'm also a scientist. Uh, I do research mostly focused on young people with neurodevelopmental disorders, um, finding new treatments, um, using brain imaging to understand more about the brain. And I'm also the associate director of the Kundal Center for Child and Youth Depression, uh, which is uh, a center that's focused on uh, improving prevention, screening, and treatment for child and youth depression in general. Wow. So what do we know about mental health in children and youth with the diagnosis in autism uh, and spectrum disorder? So as a a child and youth psychiatrist, I am mainly providing assessment and mental health care for school-age children, teens, and young adults with the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And often, young people are coming to my office um, because they're struggling with significant symptoms of anxiety, depression, sometimes psychosis, suicidality, um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and those conditions, what we call co-occurring mental health conditions, because they contribute to impairment and stress over and distress over and above um, the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, are real problems for young people. Now, is there a uh, a protocol or a list of questions that you go through when they come in um, with these symptoms or uh, uh, signs of, of you know certain different disorders? So that's a really great question. And uh, what we are starting to learn from research is that there are increased rates of a number of different diagnoses, the ones that I've mentioned in young people with autism spectrum disorder. But from the research, we also know that the rates differ and vary significantly from study to study. And that's probably because we're not exactly sure how to ask questions to figure out um, if somebody has a diagnosis over and above the autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. We recently uh, completed a study that was led by our team and uh, by my colleague, Dr. Mengshuan Lai, and we looked at almost 100 studies that report rates of different mental health diagnoses in autism. Again, attention attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety disorders, depression, schizophrenia spectrum disorders. And we found that the rates are increased overall across the studies when we pooled the data, but they vary from study to study. The key message of that paper is that individuals with ASD experience high rates of co-occurring disorders and they need mental health support. But exactly how to ask those questions, we really need to have those discussions. So what we do in our clinical care is we do a very careful mental health screen. We ask about 
all of the um, symptoms and disorders that tend to occur more commonly in individuals with autism spectrum disorder for everybody who's coming in the door. So we ask about anxiety. We ask about depression. We always ask about safety and suicidality because we also are starting to learn that suicide and suicidality is a, a big problem in young people with autism spectrum disorder. So when they're coming in and they're, they're saying that they want to end their life um, or mm-hmm. they don't want to be here anymore, what are they, what's the common thread amongst them in terms of, do they feel like a burden? Is it pain? Uh, is it the isolation? What, what are we finding? Yeah, so I can say from the young people that I see in my clinic, oftentimes it's associated with depression. So they have the symptoms present that would um, warrant an additional diagnosis of depression and the suicidality uh, comes secondary to the depression or sometimes it comes secondary to distress from anxiety. Oftentimes social isolation and bullying has um, a major uh, um, contribution to the way that they're feeling. They don't feel that they have people to that that understand them that they can reach out to. Sometimes it's really difficult to talk about how they're feeling um, and express themselves. So some of the studies are showing that depression is a big risk factor for suicidality. Some some studies show that ASD itself is a risk factor for suicidality, even when you control for depression and things like social isolation and bullying contribute. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that part of what's contributing to the depression also is um, uh, socioeconomic status. If if parents can't afford to get their kids the help that they want, um, that I would assume that that would contribute to the the depression and and the feeling of isolation have you found like a, a socioeconomic difference between um, uh, people who have uh, um, uh, ASD versus uh, those who, who um, don't? Uh, well, let me rephrase that question. Have you found a, a so I'm, I'm, I'm going to edit that out. Have you found a socioeconomic difference between people with ASD? In general? That, they, general, that people right. with ASD have lower socioeconomic status? You so, know, it ranges. Well, I guess what I'm asking is in terms of how they're able to cope, because I would just imagine if you are at the poverty level uh, and if you're a parent at the poverty level and your kid has ASD, the, the resources you might be able to have access to may be more challenging than someone who's at the upper end of the, the socioeconomic status and uh, and, and so the, the kid may feel less isolated or maybe even more isolated with the more money that they have. You know, I don't know, but have you found a, a difference in how kids are able to cope based on socioeconomic status? Well, I can say that definitely the more resources parents have, the more access they have to supports. Even in Canada, where we have um, uh, national health care coverage, we have Um, resources for individuals with autism spectrum disorder. Definitely the more resources your families have, the more access you get. And and definitely that can help. 
from a research perspective, um, what I can tell you is some research that's coming out of a longitudinal study that I um, have been collaborating with. It's led by Dr. Peters at Mari called the Pathway Study, and they followed um, young people who have a diagnosis of autism from the age of two to four all the way up to their teen years. And in looking at predictors of outcome, predictors of anxiety, definitely um, economic status, uh, family income, family stress contribute. So the more of that that's going on, the more significant the um, negative outcome is in terms of mental health. And, you know, and I should have asked you this question at the top. Can, can we describe the, the signs and symptoms of ASD, autism spectrum disorder, for the listeners out there who may not know? For sure. That's a great question, a great place to start. Um, so the way that we diagnose autism spectrum disorder is based on uh, two broad categories of symptoms, one being some social communication impairment, and under that category is problems with social reciprocity. So that's back and forth, just being able to share in a back and forth reciprocal way information um, in a in a social setting or social interactions. Also under that social communication category is nonverbal communication. So people with autism, they have difficulty with making eye contact. They have difficulty with facial expressions. Um, and they have difficulty even with the tone, tone of their voice and gesturing. So sometimes they may look very withdrawn or disinterested, but that's part of the autism spectrum disorder. And they may actually be very interested, but the way that they communicate that is different. Also under that broad category is relationships. So people with autism often have difficulty initiating and maintaining relationships with peers. So you have to have all of those things that I just mentioned in order to have an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. Problems with uh, social interactions uh, with respect to reciprocity, nonverbal communication, and uh, initiating and maintaining friendships. And then you also have to have what we call um, repetitive, uh, inflexible behaviors. Uh, so these are sometimes um, really focused interests. So some of the young people that I see with autism, they'll have uh, these interests that really are, are what they want to focus on. And they they can be um, very, very narrow in terms of um, an interest in a very specific topic, but they know everything about that topic. Uh, there are sensory sensitivities under that category. So sometimes it's hyper or hyposensitivity. And some of those sensory difficulties can make it really distressing to be in everyday settings like school or the gym where there's a lot of echoes or um, when there's an assembly and there's um, speaking on the microphone and there's a lot of background noise. So you have to have the social communication impairment and you have to have the uh, inflexible, restricted behaviors, interests and activities. And you also have to have impairment. So those difficulties have to cause impairment in settings like school, uh, family life, social settings. So that's the way that we diagnose autism spectrum disorder based on the presence of social communication impairment and those restricted repetitive behaviors, interests, and activities. You know, when you brought up the 
the light and the noise and you know like they um they have challenges challenges is uh, challenges <laughs> they have challenges um dealing with overstimulation or sensory uh, yeah. overload externally. And it brought to mind people who struggle with PTSD and that light and noise, um, it, it can sometimes throw them off. They, you know, uh, it could cause a, a flashback. Uh, is there are, are similar areas in the brain affected? And I, I know PTSD is not your specialty, but, I, but it's, I'm just thinking of the question as, as you say that, is it a similar area of the brain that's affected? Do you know that? Or um, would you have any theories on that? That's also a great question. So, um, so we don't know that much about rates of PTSD in autism. I know that's not your question. Um, just there's not enough research out there. Anecdotally, and something that I didn't describe in the um, aspects that contribute to the condition is that uh, people with autism have kind of a sticky brain. They uh, tend to like routine. They like things to be the same. And sometimes when they're exposed to things like bullying, they can get really stuck on um, those kinds of negative experiences. Um, and it's really hard for them to shift off those uh, thoughts and sometimes that can contribute to more anxiety and sometimes it can contribute to PTSD in autism spectrum disorder because those bullying experiences are uh, so salient and um, uh, uh, really take over somebody's thinking pattern. In terms of brain regions that are similar in uh, similarly implicated in ASD and PTSD, so um, you're right, PTSD is not my area of expertise, but the amygdala, um, which is a subcortical region uh, in the bottom of the brain, is really important for things like um, fear detection. And that region tends to be implicated in PTSD. It's not the only region. Um, that region also has um, received a lot of attention in autism spectrum disorder. But one of the things that we're learning from brain imaging is that there's not one region that explains uh, any particular symptom. It's The brain is so complex, and we're only just at the verge of understanding um, some of that complexity. And we also know that uh, people with autism, their brains tend to be more variable than other people. So if you look at the brains of individuals with autism and you look at the brains of individuals who uh, we would call typically developing, who don't have a, an autism spectrum disorder or another condition, their brains are more different from even each other as well as the um, individuals who don't have autism spectrum disorder. And it tells us that there's a lot of variability there and there's uh, a lot of complexity about the different regions of the brain that are probably implicated. So that kind of went around that question very broadly, but I hope it answered it to some extent. I think there's some overlap and there's some people that may look more similar at the brain level, even if they have different diagnoses. So an example of that is uh, recently we uh, published a study with the province of Ontario Neurodevelopmental Disorders Network data set. 
It's an Ontario-wide initiative that um, recruits kids with different diagnoses, uh, autism spectrum disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And from that study, we have brain images and we have behavioral data. And we've looked at the brain images and there's a lot of overlap. So individuals with autism, ADHD, and OCD, there are some subtle alterations that you see at the group level that are present across those conditions. And we also see that some of the wiring that we looked at in that study um, associates with everyday impairment. So the more impairment you have, the more your wiring looks a little bit different, but it doesn't really matter if you have an autism diagnosis, OCD, or ADHD. And so we're starting to understand in general that we don't have these discrete patterns that fit with one disorder versus another. It's more complex than that. And I mean, that's why you often hear people refer to it as being on the spectrum because there's such a, a yeah. wide variety of, you know, I've listened, I was listening to a podcast of um, someone who was diagnosed with uh, autism spectrum disorder. And, you know, the, the school thought he wouldn't make it as a kid and he, he was bullied and made fun of. And But he went on to find his niche in making guitars, you know, because it, he didn't have to socialize. It goes back to what you were saying. He wasn't good with social interaction, but he was very good at hyper-focusing and uh, he was able to hyper-focus on making guitars. So it, it's it's interesting because, you know, um, growing up, autism spectrum disorder was just, uh, you know, seen as a, as a handicap, but in some ways, for some people, uh, it can be a superpower because a lot of people don't have the ability to hyper-focus on anything. They're kind of scattered. And um, I, I wonder if maybe schizophrenia is the other end of autism spectrum disorder. Um, I'm, just, I'm just talking out loud here. But what are the – did you want to comment on that? Sure. Yeah. First of all, that's a great story um, that you heard on the podcast. And and for sure, the some of the um, satisfaction I get from my work uh, has a lot to do with how amazing some of the young people with autism spectrum disorder that I see in my clinic are. Are they know things that I would never know about? They're experts at things that I learn about from them. And um, that hyper focus can definitely be a huge strength and can be the thing that helps them to move forward and find their way in the world and what they want to do. Um, the point about schizophrenia spectrum disorder is also really interesting. Um, We're starting to do more research on the overlap between autism spectrum disorder and schizophrenia spectrum disorder. One of the studies that we're working on right now is a large study that is um, in collaboration with an even larger study uh, in schizophrenia where we're looking at what are the regions and the brain patterns that are associated with social dysfunction in individuals with autism and are they similar uh, in individuals with schizophrenia spectrum disorder. In studies that look at, at um, people that have either diagnosis, there's a lot of similarities, meaning that the social deficits, the difficulty with um, decoding 
uh, faces uh, or um, uh, figuring out social cues, subtleties in social interactions, they're not that different. And uh, when you look at people of the same age, they don't really separate out that much. So I'm not sure if it's the opposite. Autism is the opposite of schizophrenia or, or opposite ends of the same spectrum, but there's a lot of overlap and, and we need more research to figure that out. Uh, earlier, when you talked about risk factors, socioeconomic status, stress, family, are there other risk factors that, um, that aren't usually talked about in terms of what can um, cause the, um, the uh, what, uh, let me rephrase the question. Um, let me just rephrase it from the beginning. What are the risk factors that may contribute to increased mental health challenges in young people with autism spectrum disorder? So the risk factors um, that we're starting to learn about are that, you know, some of the things that put you at increased risk for uh, different mental health challenges as you develop in the general population are the same in autism. So as you get older, um, things like depression, schizophrenia, spectrum disorder, um, bipolar disorder uh, tend to, to be, um, become more common. And if you're a female, you might have more of a risk for depression. And that's the same as in the de- general population. Depression starts to become more of an issue in teens. The onset of, of a disorder like schizophrenia, spectrum disorder tends to be in the late teens, early adulthood. So there's overlap there. Other risk factors that we're starting to understand. So the same genes that put someone at risk for ASD may contribute to other disorders as well, uh, like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. So it may be that those genes put you at risk, not just for autism, but also to develop the co-occurring mental health conditions that I talked about. Some of the other things that we're learning is that um, executive functioning. So these are kind of thinking skills, like how well you shift from one topic to another, um, how well you hold on to information, how well you can inhibit responses. Those things can be a buffer or risk factor for mental health conditions. So if you have better executive functioning skills in the general population, you tend to have lower rates of some mental health conditions. And we're starting to find that that that's an issue in people with autism spectrum disorder who have high rates of those executive functioning difficulties over and above the autism diagnosis. Um, so those are some of the things that we uh, are starting to learn about and know about. Um, and, and definitely uh, people with autism experience more social isolation. They experience um, more bullying and interpersonal distress Um, Sometimes they have lower uh, physical activity and they have sleep-wake problems. And all of those things are general risk factors for other mental health conditions. So I think all of those things are um, areas that we need to learn more about to really fine-tune what puts you at risk for something versus another thing and at what time in your life. Yeah, so it seems to me like autism spectrum disorder isn't... um maladaptive in itself it's what else is it paired with it seems like uh you know if you have autism spectrum disorder but you grow up in a, in a loving family with uh resources and 
uh, a school system that that understands it, then there are there are ways that uh, one can be integrated into uh, the. I don't want to say general population like it's a jail, but uh, so that, I mean, are they putting kids with autism spectrum disorder in separate classrooms or how are, how are teachers or schools uh, handling this and how, how could they improve what they're doing? So those are all great points. They, uh, there's some research that talks about the person environment fit. So how well somebody fits within their environment, and that can be their family structure or um, whatever school setting or um, uh, community setting that they're a part of. And if there's a poorer fit um, because, you know, let's say you're somebody who uh, has a really hard time with um, sensory stuff with noises and you happen to be part of a big family that's really noisy that can make life a lot harder for you versus if you're somebody who has that difficulty and you, you're part of a small quiet family sometimes it can fit better in that environment and have less distress so definitely those environmental factors those family factors can have a huge impact on um, how someone um uh, does over time. Like we talked about before, autism spectrum is such a big spectrum and there are um, so many variations in terms of how the diagnosis presents itself. And so what I say in general is not necessarily the same for every person um, because it, it can be so different. So sometimes there are um, genetic and biological factors that can contribute to these conditions or to dysfunction. And it's not about the environment necessarily. And the autism itself can cause a lot of uh, difficulty and distress. But definitely if the environments around us um, are more flexible, are more understanding um, and more supportive, that can improve things hugely for individuals with autism. And what are some of the interventions that can help, uh, you know, from in terms of what can parents do, what can schools do, what can the community do? Like, how do we uh, help people with autism spectrum disorder at, at these varying levels? So understanding reducing stigma, um, having compassionate environments, really thinking about the individual and how um, their particular um, interests and challenges affect them in their everyday. Those kinds of things, I think, can be hugely important. So, you know, just having me on, my, on your show, other uh, um, anti-stigma campaigns, raising awareness about mental health and autism, those things um, will for sure, make a huge difference over time by changing the way that we think and making our environments more inclusive. Uh, I think that's uh, a huge thing that we can all do. Um, we need resources in the schools so that teachers and parents can communicate, so that we can find varying environments for different kids that are of benefit. So your question about schools, um, sometimes there are separate classrooms, sometimes uh, there are integrated classrooms. 
uh, it really depends on the school. And that's true for Canada. It's true for the U.S. There's a lot of variability um, from school to school, from district to district in terms of the resources. So we really need a flexible set of options and a lot of resources to help people and to um, really make the environment um, more comfortable at the individual level and think about what every individual might need. I read somewhere that uh, in terms of, of schizophrenia, and once again, I understand that that's not your specific area of expertise, um, yeah. that how much, like you said, routine is important, um, uh, exercise, but also uh, nutrition, uh, because like there are certain, you know, foods have a, a chemical reaction with our body and can trigger certain uh things and moods and you know uh the, the highs and lows especially with sugar is there a nutritional uh implication for people with autism spectrum disorder there's different research that's out there that um uh has shown that sometimes varying diets and varying certain um intake of certain foods can be helpful um, there's not um, uh, a hard and fast uh, research base to suggest that there's certain things that all people with autism spectrum disorder should avoid in terms of foods. I think the, the broader key message is that um, eating regularly and having uh, um, good nutritional intake can help in a lot of downstream effects. It can help to make sure that you can focus at school. It can help to make sure that you don't have those um, hunger lows that really can affect um, emotional regulation. So sometimes kids at school won't eat and that might um, lead them to be more irritable and that can cause huge problems um, with dysregulation and even aggression at school. So thinking about food, thinking about intake, definitely narrowed interest for food is a big issue for autism spectrum disorder. I've had um, uh, stories from parents where they have to find really specific things in order to make sure that their kids will eat. Um, so certain uh, dip from a certain restaurant or even containers from a certain restaurant to make sure all their food is in that container so that they can get their kids to eat. So it's a constant battle amongst parents and kids. When, you know, when someone is suicidal, we tend to ask, you know, do you have a plan? Um, you know, where do you hurt? Do you have access? Uh, is there a different protocol for someone with autism spectrum disorder that we would click through for some if they were presenting as suicidal? Well, there's sometimes things that we need to decode in individuals with autism. So verbal communication can be impaired uh, in people with autism where they um, cannot communicate at all or can't communicate as well. And so sometimes uh, parents and families um, will decode their kids' routines and behaviors and see, are they at their normal? Are they at their baseline? And kind of knowing uh, that normal and knowing that baseline is pretty key. 
Um, and there's some really nice resources out there. There's a, a group in the UK that put out this toolkit called Know Your Normal to understand what those routines are and what that baseline is. So what time does somebody fall asleep each day? How much time do they spend on their projects? Uh, do they tend to go to school regularly? And sometimes figuring out how somebody is doing is seeing whether the things that they often do that show that they're at their baseline are still there. Um, because communication can be really hard in terms of um, talking about when something shifts. And then the safety screening stuff that we go through is very similar as um, in people without uh, this diagnosis. Are they contemplating, thinking about suicide? Um, as you said, do they have a plan? Do they have the means? Have they uh, tried something before? Are they engaging in uh, self-injury in some other ways that that's related to suicidality. Um, so really figuring out how much are they thinking about it? How much of a risk is it right now? And, and going from there in terms of offering care. You know, I love that idea of know your normal because, uh, a lot of us don't know our normal. We, we, it's, you know, by the time we realize we're, we're off track or off our routine, uh, it's uh, it's hard to stop that momentum of the downward spiral. And uh, if we had a better uh, awareness of what our normal was, what time do we usually wake up, eat breakfast, and and, it, and what works for us, um, mm-hmm. that uh, we could we could prevent or at least be able to easier manage uh, a lot of downward spirals that that we go through. Um, the what got you into this field of of study? Well, I uh, started out as a child and youth psychiatrist, and I went and did my master's degree in um, neuroscience, and I got really interested in brain imaging and really interested in social circuits and and how the brain processes social information. And that led me to my interest in autism spectrum disorder and my focus in that field. And then really the the work that I've done um, uh, in mental health and and the kinds of things that that uh, come through my door when I'm doing my clinical work, depression, and suicidality, those are key issues and key areas that that have a huge impact for functioning for people. And they really get in the way of uh, making good transitions. So being able to go from high school and um, go into whatever comes next and living up to um, your academic and your cognitive and 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 everyday potential. So, um, really trying to find new interventions and um, ways to help people. Those are the things that that have kind of led me along the way. I love that. And were were your parents in this field at all, or what were their occupations? My dad's a physician, uh, not a psychiatrist. Uh, he's a physiatrist, a doctor of physical medicine, and my my mom is a physiotherapist. So definitely, the conversations about helping people and and providing care had a lot to do with with me going into medicine and psychiatry. Beautiful. And I want to go back just a little bit when we're talking about know your normal. I would imagine the importance of journaling has to be so great. Whether it's the parents taking notes or the, the child themselves taking notes. But in terms of knowing what your normal is, I, for myself, have to journal every day to remind myself of what works for me 
and what doesn't work? What's effective? What's not effective in terms of breakfast, waking up, exercise? Should I work out in the morning? Should I work out at night? Uh, it really can be uh, a lifelong process that sometimes changes with the seasons. Have you found uh, uh, how seasons can affect what people with autism spectrum disorder are showing up with or their moods? That's also a great question. So um, what we know is is, it it tends to also come from um, the non-autistic field. So usually around summertime when school's out, kids tend to have less uh, stress less anxiety they're they're coming to the emergency room less than during the school year and anecdotally although i haven't looked at this in my research and i really haven't um studied this so much and to see what's out there the start of school um any time around breaks and the end of school are are big times when distress kind of bubbles and uh kids can definitely go through periods of more dysregulation where they have more anxiety about going to school, they're, they're having more difficulty regulating their sleep, their worry, etc. And, and that probably in autism has a lot to do with the difficulty with transition. So people with autism, they tend to like their routines. They tend to um, like things to be a certain way and get stuck to those things. And um, those are um, aspects of life that really help them to maybe determine to feel certain and secure. And then when those things change and even seasonal changes um, where you have to shift from t-shirts to long sleeves or you have to start wearing boots um, or, or, or leave your sandals at the door. So sometimes those things can be a big issue because you're having to transition and the feel of those things is different. So definitely the school year uh, for the young people that I see and the change in seasons have something to do with distress, um, and, but it, it tends to have sort of practical um, uh, mechanisms with respect to the transitions um, in what you're wearing and what you're doing. So what, what for the parents out there who see their kids under distress and, you know, the school year is about to start and all the anxiety, I mean, even if you don't have autism spectrum disorder, uh, the average person struggles with transitions, whether it's uh, going to college, leaving college, uh, going from one job to the next, getting married, getting a divorce. Transitions are, are a challenge for so many people. So how are we coaching parents or schools and uh, to uh, be able to address the distress in their kids who have autism spectrum disorder? So some of the things that tend to help are just prepping and anticipation. That's not specific to autism. That's for all of us. Um, but it tends to help a lot for young people with autism. So go to the school before the first day, you know, walk there, get into the routine beforehand so that you minimize all the change at once and know who the teachers are. Make sure the teachers know um, what makes kids feel comfortable. Give them that flexibility to have a little bit of space. So all of those kinds of anticipatory things 
to help with mental preparation can help a lot. Some some practical things, you can have a storybook where you have a picture of the school and you have a picture of the teachers and you have a picture of what the routine is going to be like. I'm going to go to bed at this time. I'm going to wake up at this time. We're going to walk to school that day. You have all of those things that are prepped and that anticipation tends to reduce distress. It doesn't take it away completely, but it tends to, to help with those transitions. Wow. You know, I just, uh, not moved, but I'm kind of staying down here in San Diego. I live in Los Angeles and it has been uh, a bit distressing for me because I don't know San Diego. I don't know how to get around. I need the GPS, uh, for directions, uh, most of the time. And I, you know, I don't know where the gyms are, the coffee shops. And you're so right. If I had just taken the time to just drive around San Diego, kind of get to know it, look at a map, kind of get an overall understanding of the layout of San Diego and, and where things are, uh, it would have greatly uh, reduced my stressing. And, and going to businesses and gyms and, and just kind of get to know the, I mean, so this is, like you said, is great advice for anybody who's transitioning is, you know, to really take the time to, to uh, learn your surroundings and your new environment versus uh, just hoping you'll you'll figure it out day to day. It, it doesn't it doesn't really help. The in terms of uh, what you see the future of of interventions for people with autism spectrum disorder, what what do we see in the future? What what's how are we gonna um, what's the progress being made there? Thanks for that question. It's we we do have interventions that we know can be effective, but we desperately need more research and more effective interventions. So right now, we often borrow from the literature, the research out there that tells us what evidence-based interventions are for anxiety or depression or ADHD in children who don't have autism spectrum disorder. There have been enough studies out there that we know that the treatments for ADHD, they work in people with autism spectrum disorder who also have ADHD. Um, Something like cognitive behavioral therapy for individuals that can engage in in that form of therapy, which is not um, uh, always possible, but that treatment can help for people with anxiety and autism spectrum disorder. We have very little information about best treatments for depression. Um, We even have very little uh, out there to know what to do when our frontline treatments fail for people who don't have autism, who are children and youth. So depression is a huge problem in teens. And in my work as uh, the associate director of the Kundal Center for Child and Youth Depression at CAMH, I know that 60% uh, of young people who have depression who don't have autism will respond to the treatments that we have. And the relapse rate is, uh, is about half of, the, of those people that do respond. So they get depression again. So even though we don't have enough research to suggest that the treatments that we use in children and teens who don't have autism We don't have enough research to show that the same treatments will work in ASD. We do have some anecdotal experience that 
um, kids with ASD can benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy as would be recommended in, in kids without ASD. And, and we know uh, anecdotally, although we need research studies that show that the treatments that we have, like the ser- selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, medications, antidepressants, they probably can help for individuals with ASD. So those are still the, the recommended first treatments, um, although we know we need more research to, to figure out how they help in people with ASD. What becomes more difficult is what happens when those things don't work. And uh, often the times, you know, working in a tertiary care center where um, young people have usually already gone to their family doctor and they're coming to a psychiatrist because those first-line treatments didn't work very well, that's where we don't know exactly what to do. And we need more research there. So one of the studies that we're embarking on now, our team, is to look at um, a a treatment called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, brain stimulation, um, where you use a magnet to activate neurons just below uh, the surface of the brain. And for people who have treatment-resistant depression, who are adults, um, about half of individuals will respond. Sorry, are you still there? I am, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Something just happened, I think, maybe. Um, so uh, what we're going to do is is we're going to look at whether that brain stimulation treatment that we know helps for people who have treatment-resistant depression um, that where therapy, psychotherapy and medications didn't work, we're looking at whether that will work in young people who have autism and depression. So we need more studies. We need more studies and we need larger studies and we need them fast so that we can um, have the research findings to figure out what the best treatments are. And it's also tricky because we know from uh, the general literature, it takes about 17 years from the time that we have a research finding for it to make it into general clinical care takes way too long. And so we really need to do this research. And that's part of why um, campaigns like the Not Suicide, Not Today campaign that CAMH is embarking on is so important because it can raise funds and raise awareness. And, and that awareness really helps to uh, jumpstart research and reduce stigma so people are interested in engaging in research. Yeah. What's the percentage of of, I know you're in Canada, the Canadian population that have uh, autism spectrum disorder, and what are the worldwide uh, rates? The worldwide rate is, is uh, pretty similar uh, across uh, countries, and it's uh, about 1% of the population have this diagnosis. And where can people donate to in order to help or, or learn more? What would be a, a good resource for people to go to? There are lots of different resources out there. Um, Autism Speaks is is one of them that uh, um, has a network across North America that uh, connects uh, doctors and um, different healthcare providers and families um, with up-to-date information uh, about care and resources for people with autism spectrum disorder. There's a uh, a Netflix documentary I just watched, The Speed Cubers. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. Uh, it's remarkable. It's about uh, two kids who 
<coughs> excuse me, two kids who are uh, competing to be the top uh, Rubik's Cube solver. Like, they, like, these are kids who saw the Rubik's Cube in, like, 3.5 seconds, 2.5 seconds. You know, like, it's, it's insane the, the number, how quickly they can, or remarkable, extraordinary, how quickly they can do this. Um, and the two main characters that they focus on, one is, uh, I forget the one kid's name, but the other kid has autism spectrum, uh, has autism, and he is 19, but he is kind of emotionally like, more like 9 or 10. So we kind of see him uh, grow up and function and be hyper-focused on this one particular thing and learning how to interact socially with other uh, speed cubers uh, throughout this this episode. It's only 40 minutes long on Netflix, but um, it's, it goes back to what you were saying of like he, he was able to hyper-focus and early on, uh, if he lost, you know, he would get upset, but he learned through time how to manage losses and manage his emotions. Of course, he's still working on it, but we got to see him get better at doing that and see how the family uh, interacts with him so that uh, he can thrive in this world of, of speed cubes. I, I don't want to give the ending away, uh, <laughs> but it's I, I was riveted. Me and my girlfriend were like, what? We were just glued to the television. So we I, I would assume that programs or documentaries or docuseries like this, bringing attention to it can help with funding as as we as the public be, uh, learn more about autism spectrum disorder and, uh, and are more understanding of what they're going through. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will watch that documentary. In my uh, clinical practice, I often will tell parents who are, who are, are might be parents of young children, but they're um, coming to me with concerns about what will what will things look like when my child is a young adult? How will they navigate the world? How will they um, uh, do without me when I'm not around? And um, some of the things we talk about is that where things are right now is not where things will be later. And we can grow and shift and change in so many different ways. And that's really the goal. Um, Sorry, go ahead. No, you said uh, what you said. That's really the goal. Uh, can you continue? Yeah. So many of the young people that I see, and this also will vary depending on um, uh, a person's particular situation, and and sometimes depending on their verbal ability or their um, intellectual ability. Uh, but we can all learn skills, and um, I often say that you know. Only a very small minority of people will become or are virtuoso piano players, you know, will become masters. But if we practice and we dedicate the time, most of us can learn to play piano. And it's the same kind of thing. So over time, a lot of the young people that I see, they will learn how to um, decode social interactions or um, figure out how to pass um, and, and they'll, in a cognitive way, sometimes, um, learn how to get a buy in, in social interactions. And sometimes that ca- can cause a lot of stress because they're always sort of on, uh, when they're outside of the house. And, and the only time that they can really relax is when they're on their own. 
Um, but you can learn. And um, just like uh, uh, that character, or the, the person that the documentary was about, um, things change over time. And so it's really important to hold on and keep providing support and keep working towards um, developing those skills. I love that. Uh, like maybe 10 years ago, uh, I ran into uh, Neil Strauss, who's an author, and he was running a mastermind group uh, weekend. It was a two-day group. And it was maybe about 100 guys. They paid $10,000 each to learn how to interact with people uh, socially. These were guys who uh, were like CEOs, entrepreneurs, million, you know, they, they made millions of dollars. But because they were so hyper-focused on their work and their job, their social skills atrophied. And so they were taking a two-day seminar from this guy to learn how to interact with people and socialize and, like you said, decode. So this, I'd be interested to see how this whole quarantine thing uh, affects people's ability to socially uh, interact. And, and I only say that because if there are listeners out there who do have autism spectrum disorder or you know somebody, to know that you're not alone and that a lot of people, people paying $10,000 to learn how to socially interact. It's, it's awkward for a lot of people. I understand the situation is different, but uh, it's just my way of saying that we, we all have uh, things in common uh, to varying degrees. And, um, and, and so hopefully that, that conversation can more reduce the stigma of it. Absolutely. Is there, We're, yeah. Go, on, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's just that uh, we all are on a a spectrum of ability or less ability um, with our our social functioning. So some of us are really good at at math, but um, we're not that great at holding a conversation. Um, And so, you know, I think that... um, Again, some of the reason why I love my work so much is that I I can uh, relate that there are um, things that I do well and other things I really don't do well at, and I, I I have to I have to practice much more, and and that's all of us. Is there anything, Doctor Amos, that we haven't discussed in terms of autism spectrum disorder, the treatments, the signs, the, uh, the future? implications anything no I, I think we we covered a lot and it's been very enjoyable to talk with you about this topic and I, I think the the thing that um, I really hope will resonate is that mental health is a is a huge aspect of um, care uh, and support needs for uh, young people with autism spectrum disorder for people with autism spectrum disorder across the lifespan that um, suicidal thinking and, and suicidality is um, a, a huge issue of, of importance and seems to be increased in this population based on the research that we have. And we need more in this area. We need more work and we need people who are providing care for uh, individuals with autism spectrum disorder, autistic people to, to think about um, those kinds of safety concerns and ask about it. Um, I think those are the big things that I want to make sure that people people know um, in listening to the podcast. And I, I know you mentioned resources earlier for people to to check out, like Autism Speaks. Are there one or two other resources, especially for for family members 
that they can reach out to? Or uh, is there, a, you know, even a CAMH uh, website? Where can, where can families uh, uh, find additional resources? So some additional resources through the CAMH website can um, uh, be found uh, through um, the part of the CAMH website that goes through the Cundle Center. The Cundle Center for Child and Youth Depression have lots of good resources in general for um, uh, depression, suicidality, for people without autism. Um, and we're developing new resources for people with autism uh, on that website. Um, there is a... Um, a lovely website that I was talking about before called Know Your Normal. And if you just Google Know Your Normal, um, you get that toolkit, lots of information about um, mental health that I think will, will help a lot of people um, in, in terms of thinking about their baselines and, and when things are different. And that's helpful for families too, because it can help them to identify when they need to be worried and when, when things are going okay too. Dr. Amos, the last question I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? I would say that um, please hold on and please reach out. That um, talking or texting um, or interacting with somebody either within um, your community, your family, but also um, outside using some of the, the supports that are available in uh, Canada, the U.S., wherever you are, um, helplines, um, reach out. Um, because talking to somebody and thinking about things um, and, and reflecting on what may change can be very helpful in um, seeing a different future. Please hold on. And uh, the campaign that um, CAMH is launching is really about having discussions about reducing stigma, raising awareness, so that suicide is, is prevented, so that people choose not today, um, and that they'll go on to a tomorrow, um, and that we're we're working on it. We're working on making systems better and more aware, and we need research to reduce stigma and to figure out what the next steps are. Dr. Amos, thank you so much. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALKS or the other 20 other resources and numbers listed in all of the show notes. I know I have listeners in Canada and overseas. There are international phone numbers. They are listed in the show notes. There's someone out there who is willing and ready to listen to you, to help you, to ally with you, and to sit with you. Just, just, just to be with you, just to sit with you, and maybe say nothing, but just to let you feel a little less alone in the world. As you heard from this episode, we have a lot of people working on interventions to help you, to help us, to help the world. Know that someone at all times is fighting for your life. But you have to make that first step and reach out and hold on. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. 
Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Amos. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Remember, today's episode was brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is not a crisis line and wants you to start living a happier life today. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals or feeling connected, go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo now. Enjoy your 10% off and start moving closer to happiness and thriving today.